We are living in a unique moment in history. Transformational changes are happening across sectors faster than ever before. The pace of change is starting to exceed our ability of traditional organizations to adapt. They're still designed like centrally planned economies where one entity decides where does talent go, where do jobs go, where do resources go. And we know central planning doesn't work. It's not able to keep up with this fast pace of competition that we are dealing with. As Jack Welch said, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. In our opening there, you heard from Kyan Krippendorf, a successful entrepreneur, author, speaker, and advisor talking about this unique point of history we are currently living through. As we talk about frequently on this podcast, the pace of technical and societal change we currently face is unprecedented. But Kyan looks at this from a uniquely business perspective, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the biggest problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. Today's guest, Kyan, has made a commitment to helping organizations thrive in today's era of fast-paced, disruptive technological change. He is an internationally recognized thought leader, battle-tested consultant, and sought-after keynote speaker on the topics of strategy, growth, and transformation. A little bit about Kyan's background. He began his career with McKinsey before founding the growth strategy and innovation consulting firm Outthinker. He's also a best-selling author of five books, most recently the Edison Award-nominated Driving Innovation from Within, a Guide for Internal Entrepreneurs. Despite all of this and a busy family life with his wife and three children, he still finds time to teach at business schools throughout the United States and internationally and host the Outthinkers podcast. He earned an MBA at Columbia Business School and London Business School, a Bachelor of Science in Finance from Wharton Business School, and a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Pennsylvania, where he also holds a Doctorate of Science in Economics. Wow. So it's a great pleasure and honor and I'm really excited to speak to Mr. Kyan Krippendorf today. So I'd like to welcome our guest to the great indoors today, Mr. Kyan Krippendorf. Kyan, how are you doing? Welcome. I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me here. Brilliant, brilliant. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation uh, today. But this is a question I spring on our guests, so you wouldn't have seen this oh, in our great. preparation. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could come on to some entrance music, a sting, if you will, what would it be? A sting. You know, you said sting and my mind immediately went to David Bowie. I don't know why. Maybe it's the British, maybe it's the hair, but there's a song that I've been listening to before all my speeches, which is David Bowie and Queen singing Under Pressure. Under Pressure, I think. Under Pressure. Oh my gosh. That is the most amazing song. I think I would I would want to come on the stage with that. Pressure. 
Excellent. Brilliant. Well, welcome uh, to the Great Indoors Giant. It's a pleasure to, to have you here. It's an honour to have you here. Um, and, and tell us, uh, for our listeners, a little bit about your history, um, about Outthinkers, uh, and, and you know some of the books uh, you've written, because it's, it, it's, it's mind, mind-opening uh, hmm. stuff that you do. Yeah, I started this career in 2004. I was working at McKinsey. I was a consultant. I was a banker before that. I went to business school. I was kind of on that traditional um, uh, career path. And in 2004, I had published my first book. I've worked on it for seven years up until that point, but never really at the tension of building a career around that. And pretty much my story since then has been kind of pivoting around and figuring out like what to do with my passion for researching topics, writing about them, studying them, basically taking knowledge and making it accessible to other people. The name Outthinker we just uh, came up with in 2010, the core concept really uh, came together. We used to do consulting, but really I do two things now. Um, I write books and give speeches on these books. Some of that content turns into tools that coaches get trained in, and we have a few coaches that are kind of trained in that. And then, the, but the other part is a peer network of chief strategy officers from large enterprises. And so, if you're familiar with some of these entrepreneurial ones like EO or Vistage or YPO or these kind of member organizations, picture a member organization, but people who lead strategy for multi billion dollar businesses. So, those are my two activities, if you will. Yeah, but we have a whole kind of theory about what outthinking is and why it matters to the world and how that how it works. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Now let's start with we we picked some topics we wanted to really dig into and and the world today. But I think the first one was terminology, right? And I think this is this is really key to typically what we talk about every day in in the technology industry. But it's the different terminology and how that affects understanding adoption. Uh, articulation. So give us your thoughts on on terminology, Karen, because it's, as a yeah. marketeer in technology, this to me is like the holy grail, if you will. Yeah. yeah I think it's so important and underappreciated. My father's been a professor for over 50 years at the same university, University of Pennsylvania. He's a communications professor. He started off as a designer and he moved to communications because he was looking at how does an artifact communicate to a human how it should be used? How do you know to reach for a door at a refrigerator? How do you know to turn a key in a car, right? And so he's looking at this human artifact communication. Anyway, it led to his area. One of his areas became social construction of reality. And he teaches one of the most popular classes that he teaches is this social construction reality. So I grew up kind of with that. How does language create reality? You know, some places the head of the table is not one side of the table. It's the top of the table, right? Now, in that culture, where you sit won't indicate whether you have power or not, right? Looking at how language shapes our perception of reality. And so, you know, what I like to look at is, they, I, I, I like, you know, my area is business. So I like to look at the emergence of certain concepts. Like, for example, there was a period when companies would grow, and even though they were growing quickly, they were losing money. And people couldn't figure out, why was this? You're a successful company. Why are you running out of money? And so they tried different things, and, you know, an accountant or, you know, someone in the accounting realm came up with a term called inventory turns. Inventory terms is how quickly your inventory turns. 
if your inventory turns quickly, then you are in a better cash position than if it takes a long time to turn because you have to have a lot of inventory to sell. You're going to sell more next year, so you got to buy six months worth of inventory. So once we had the term inventory terms, it started changing what people paid attention to, what options they saw, what they focused on. It, it changed behavior, which then behaved, changed outcomes. So I think that the way we understand the word is through language, and language is a tool to shape our thinking, shape what options we seize, which ones we choose, and thereby our actions, and thereby reality. It's fascinating, and I think... The, the example that, that I like to use when we look at terminology right now is the big hot buzzword in tech, partly due to Mr. Zuckerberg, is the metaverse, right? And, and actually, when you strip that back, there's a whole bunch of technologies that sit under that umbrella, whether it's AI, 5G, virtual reality, AR. But the fact that that term is now the umbrella term for the technologies and the experience that it will enable, that grouping and that new buzzword, although it was actually in, in a novel by Neil Stevenson many years ago, I think it's helped people, it is helping propagate it forward, for people to understand it, to start building business models around it, to start thinking, what does it mean to me? And, and, we, and we talked about this before. What I find interesting is I read this um, group of essays by the economist Charles Eisenstein last week. And of course, uh, he, he's very down on what the metaverse will do for mankind and humanity. So he gave it a new terminology, something that's a little bit more uh, insidious, a little bit more negative, And that was mm -hmm. transhumanism. <laughs> so whenever he talks about the metaverse, he switches out the metaverse with transhumanism. He makes that very clear in every essay. This is what I mean. But it does, it paints a different understanding and paints it's, a different ethos or a different potential to what it can do. Yeah. There's this Buddhist uh, framework or whatever, which says that how, you know, how we become conscious of things is first we, we said directly sense something, I see a color, it's white. And then we have a reaction to it. It's either positive or negative. You know, we either want to run away or run to it. We like white or we don't like white. And then we name it. And we call it a rabbit. Oh, it's a white rabbit. And then we react to it. I like rabbits or I don't like rabbits. And then the fifth stage is we then become conscious of what we just saw. And all that, all the first four steps don't happen on, they happen before pre-consciousness. And so, you know, the entailments that are associated with the language you use really have a powerful uh, factor in whether someone wants to run to it or run away from it. I think that blockchain you know, the word block sounds hard, chain sounds like restricting, and then it got associated with cryptocurrencies and shady stuff. And it has been rebranded and combined with other things with meta sounds like open versus sort of universe and possibility, right? And it's not unlike what uh, in the United States, especially uh, elected officials do in the House and Senate when they, you know, create a bill, it's the American Freedom Bill, and it really has to do with, you know, something that has very little to do with freedom. Yeah. So if you can name, if you can name it, then mm -hmm. you can shape how it evolves. I know it's it's a, it's a brilliant concept, and 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 something as a marketeer, 
where we've named products in the past. Uh, as I said, for a lot of our, our listeners that are in marketing and tech, it's 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 a really great um, thing to to look about and yeah. talk about. So, and, you know, I feel like there aren't very. Uh, well, I guess it depends on who you're selling to, but I think a lot of technology firms don't do a good job of creating a name that kind of cuts through uh, and makes sense. You know, like Salesforce talking about for years, for a decade, talking about not software. And everyone's like, what is it then? And then the <laughs> word cloud became a thing or as a service became a thing. And then that has a metaphor that people can get at that deeper level, you know, the white reaction to white rabbit reaction to rabbit cloud evokes colors and emotions that feels light and it sort of makes them metaphorically and it helps us make sense of what this is that's really magic i think amazon does a good job of that on the consumer side amazon prime for example right yeah so yeah i can't i can't name the other one begins with an a because she's sitting here listening to me but um, <laughs> you know the, uh, that, that became a sticky term as well <laughs> So let's talk about decentralized organizational structures. I think this is another key area that you uh, that you focus on, um, Kyan. So give us your thoughts on this. It's and and I thought about this prior to this podcast, and I, and, I, and I'll give you my thoughts. But just for yeah. our listeners, break that down for us, if if you will. In my last book, I was looking at where does innovation come from, and I kind of backward analyzed the. 30 most transformative innovations over the last 30 years. And 70% of those come from employees and not from entrepreneurs. And so it's like, you know, we wouldn't have the internet, wouldn't have email, wouldn't have mobile phones, wouldn't have DNA sequencing, wouldn't have MRIs if it weren't for employees who are innovative. And yet we have this idea that, you know, large enterprises can't innovate. So I've really been on a mission for the last seven years to flip that narrative and say, hey, yes, we have large organizations have been innovators, they are innovators, and you can innovate. And so really on a mission to open up so that we can uh, unlock greater innovation from intern from inside. And so what I started studying is what, what are the barriers and how, how are organizations unlocking the barriers? And we're starting to see this organizations practice really innovative organizational models that look much more like ecosystems, allow a lot more flexibility and agility and I think that becomes important, especially now, because as the pace of change accelerates, the traditional hierarchical models are such that they have difficulty reacting quickly enough to keep up with the pace of change. So I think this is going to be a differentiator. The organizations that do embrace these more decentralized uh -huh. models are going to win. And I think that society needs it because the next internet, 70% chance, whatever that next internet is going to be, if it's, if it's metaverse, then it's metaverse. 70% chance history tells us it's going to come from a large organization that's already established. I, th I think you make a really good point there that you set out to, to, to say, no, big corporates are innovative and can innovate and it happens. But does that go back to the earlier point on terminology in that people associate startups with yeah. innovation? Right. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like when you think startup, you think innovation. And then when you think corporate you think of bureaucracy is yeah. that a a terminology thing i know that, that yeah, yeah you prove it out but but does that 
come from there as well, do you think? Yeah, I think so. It does. And I think it, it, it runs deeper as well in that if you take a, a string of terminologies and you put them together, then you have a narrative. Pick someone that is admired as a business innovator. And I will bet you, you know, 70% chance. Here's the story. He's a white man. He gets his idea in college. He goes to the West Coast. He puts together a small team. <laughs> he goes into a garage. They build something and then they take it out. And if that's Google or if that's Airbnb or if that's HP or if that is Amazon, right? That's the story that we tell, right? And so it shapes and in the in the stories we tell shape what we expect. So it shapes the possibilities that we see, right? It it also works on that narrative level. So that's the subconscious blueprint of what innovation is. Yes, right? yes, yes. Great way of putting it. Yes. You know, as as a corporate, as a we're a big corporate. We're over thirty thousand people, and we we pride ourselves on innovation and and having that Israeli startup culture. You know, can you point to some examples yeah. where you've seen a big bureaucratic tech company or other tech company change their org structure and become, as a result, more innovative? And uh... let me let me. Uh, this is a stretch on whether you count a tech company, but right, other tech companies are looking at this and adopting. In fact, I was a couple of weeks ago sharing this case with a very big. T- technology company, one of like the four big tech companies, and they were all over it. They want to say, how can we adopt this model? So there's this Chinese company called Hire. Uh, They buy GE appliances five years ago. After they buy GE appliances, so post-acquisition revenue, 15 billion. Five years later, revenue, 32 billion. Most of that from organic growth. And if you ask them why they were able to generate that level of organic growth, what they'll say is it's that they took their hierarchy and they broke down the company. They introduced this, this one term that I think is going to become an important term. It's going to, is very sticky. As I, when I tell it, I can hear people you repeat it, a micro enterprise. So they took their hierarchy, they break it down to 4,000 micro enterprises. Each micro enterprise has a CEO. The CEO can get voted out if he or she's not doing a good job by the people that are part of the micro enterprise. And then they did something which our research shows very few companies are doing. Companies are adopting other elements of their model, but there's one thing that uh, we're we're seeing almost no companies in the US do is turning their support functions, turning your IT function. Instead of having one IT, let's break it up into a series of IT micro enterprises. Those micro enterprises have to sell IT services internally. Their budget comes from the contracts that they get internally. And if they're not doing a good job, then just like any company, then their revenue starts declining and they go away. So now we have 4,000 micro enterprises interacting with each other under this one brand, a few shared things to track performance and payments and things like that. And they have companies competing with each other. There'll be two or three teams, two or three micro enterprises going after the same opportunity, you know? So, um, but what's cool about it is GE appliances adopted this model as well. So it's not just, it can't only be done in China. They've, they've adopted it. Um, Fujitsu in Europe has adopted this model as well. That's what I'm kind of studying next because I think it's a very liberating model, which turns employees into entrepreneurs. So the example for us, so for Larissa and I, who are part of 
the America's marketing team. Yep. We could then maybe call our uh, sales teams in Europe and offer our marketing services, yep. right? If they gave us a cost code, they diverted it away from the European marketing team, and yep. we would offer them a more improved, more creative marketing service. That's the yes. thinking behind it, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I like it. I like and it. That, now you're existing in an internal marketplace. You know, yeah. there's a this gentleman at MIT, Tom Malone, brilliant guy. It would be interesting if you could get him on the podcast and have him be here. He said this. He says there there are five ways that people organize themselves. They got hierarchy. We got hierarchies. We've got ecosystems. We've got communities. We've got marketplaces and we have democracies and really if you open up you know peel open an organization they've got a little bit of all of that primarily hierarchies but what we've done just now is we've turned your service we've created a marketplace for your services as a way to decide where you who you're serving through a marketplace rather than through a hierarchy and you've given the person or, or the team that you're offering services to for the first time ever, choice, right? Yes, yes, So, yes. you know, it, it, that's, the, that, that, that's a key driving factor. They can say now, you know, I've always admired the work Matt Roberts has done for the Americas. Now, this is how I get a pay rise, Larissa. We can up the price mm -hmm. per hour mm -hmm. of our services. I'm, I'm putting this all together as I'm going <laughs> yeah, to fix yes, this yes. at, 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 yes. our CMO I'll put shortly. you in touch with, uh, you know, put you in touch with the GE appliances and, yeah. and the like, so you can learn how it's done. But yeah, it works. And and can you point to an example of a corporate that has failed or failed to even acknowledge the possibilities oh. of decentralization and as a result suffered? And I think there's one I can think of, but I, I'm sure. interested but to to get an example. There's one uh, that from... I think is going to suffer. I won't name it, but they're a large company that makes technology and sells it mostly to the government, the kind of stuff that goes to other places like mm -hmm. the Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, we did this thing. We, you know, They wanted to activate more internal innovation. We trained 600 people in this, this process that we have and ideating. And then they worked in groups for a day. So 600 people a day each, 600 days of work, thinking of ideas, right? And they generated like 60 ideas. Of, these are smart people, pretty senior, thoughtful, you know, spending their time thinking about what, what they could do to make this company better. You know, those ideas are just sitting somewhere in a platform. No one's looking at them. So I think that if you don't have that kind of idea flow internally, that's, the, that's an early sign that um, yeah. you're not going to adapt. And, and we talked there about decentralized org structures ultimately improving the bottom line for a company, yeah, right? Yeah, yep, yep. But, but what inherent positivities does it have for the employees that are yearning to Ooh. be more entrepreneurial and innovative? Surely it has a huge boost for them from a retention or productivity yeah. perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, at the time I wrote the book, over 80% of U.S. employees reported being disengaged or, very, or extremely disengaged at work. Uh, we've, we've done some recent, stu recent study. We haven't yet published the results, but I can kind of speak to them, which was we look at uh, companies that are really good at attracting and retaining top talent, self-reported. We, we, do you agree your company is very good, four or five out of five, at attracting and retaining top talent? And so take the top performers. They are 
eight times more likely. So employees that work in these, these high retention companies are eight times more likely to say it's easy to get resources to initiate a new idea. They are five times more likely to say we're allowed to act with autonomy. They're six times more likely to say we operate in decentralized units. They are four times more likely to say we're treated like entrepreneurs, not employees. And the mm -hmm. correlation on that is extremely strong. Introducing these kind of decentralized models definitely improves your ability to recruit and retain. It also improves performance by similar quotients. What was interesting as well, and something I mentioned as we got into this topic when we were thinking about it, and I'm not a software engineer and I don't uh, proclaim to be so, but when you look at how software engineering has evolved, where mm -hmm. it was a waterfall model, you built the code, you put it to test, there was bugs, you went into bug fix, you built another version. And then of course, software engineering in itself has become a decentralized or you know, structure with agile, with DevOps, with scrum teams doing sprints, releasing code quicker. There's almost, there seems to be this connection between a corporate organizational structure and the way software is engineered. I mean, yeah. it, it uses some of the same terminology and some of the same methodology, I think. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to the, the topic of, um, you know, of, of concept adoption, you know, agile or lean or circular method or spiral method or scrum, they have their roots in war fighting. They have their roots in John Boyd's ah. OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. Mm -hmm. That's what Steve Blank says. That's what Peter Sutherland says, the, the kind of creators of Agile and the creator of Scrum. So that then moves into software development. But then IT groups start acting like that. You know, they act operating like that. But now IT is interacting with business and business has to start interacting with the same kind of rhythm because you can't have what's difficult it creates friction if you have the it team acting with agility quick test learn you know and then they're interacting with business and business is like waiting for the waterfall right so now i businesses so that's that's the bridge by which agile is entering into the business side So let's talk about another topic we wanted to talk about, and that was proximity and, and your notion mm -hmm. of proximity here, Kaim, because again, earlier on in this season, we had Andrea Limbargo, who's a supply chain specialist, and we talked about all the incredible supply chain shocks that have happened in the last couple of years um, and that have really affected everybody because of globalization uh, and, and where we are. But give us your thoughts about the notion of proximity and how that is changing things. Yeah around the world. And I think it's, it's related to this decentralization. We talk about decentralization of organizational structures. What we're seeing now is a decentralization of supply to demand. The term proximity is one that was introduced by my friend and the co-author of a book that I'm writing now, Robert Walcott at Kellogg Business School and, uh, and Chicago Booth. And so the idea here is that the production and provision of value so producing it and delivering it moves ever closer to the point of demand in time and space. 
if you want to see where things could end up eventually is you look at what is P equals zero like. So Domino's, its stock price has outperformed Google's and other big tech companies. What it does is it delivers its pizza quicker, right? But it doesn't just get it to you more quickly. It allows you to see that it's being made. So take the value of this pizza and it's not just the pizza, it is getting to customize it, getting to see it being made, see it shipped, and they're able to deliver that digitally more quickly. And as value propositions become more digital, we can transport more of that more quickly. And 3D printing is a, is a technology that is hitting lots of sectors. And what 3D printing allows us to do is start producing closer to the point of demand. There are many car parts that cost more to ship than they do to make. So it makes complete economic sense that we'll have 3D printers in your car shop, and when you need a part, they'll just print it. Also, there's less inventory, right? You see um, in food, we see uh, the what well, we'll see 3D printing of food. Crickets is a great protein. You mix it with the, the right kind of flavors. If you're able to make the right kind of textures, then you can print high-protein food that is better for the environment. And um, anyway, and, 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 and it it increased less waste. 30% of food production in the world is wasted. So, I mean, I could go on, but, but we're looking at food, energy, we're moving to decentralized models where we're producing, producing energy right on your roof, in batteries, close to your home. You're going to start being able to sell that to the grid. The blockchain and, and other Web3 things are also allowing us to enable those kinds of payments. We're seeing that in defense. We're seeing that in even like how people date and love. We're seeing it in um, how you work. You know, incentives moving cl in closer proximity of action, and that starts looking like gamification. So I think that this proximity concept just helps us, you know, make a lot of sense. And and mm -hmm. and, and especially post COVID, where we're seeing the disruption of supply chains and realizing that producing things very far away, just in time, creates uh, really hurts our resilience. We need greater resilience of our supply chains. What I draw from that, and and using some personal examples and, and thinking about how proximity could solve not just supply chain issues, but you look at the climate crisis that we're in, mm -hmm. right? And I, and this is a personal example. I, I bought this, uh, the, the house I live in now, I, I bought it like eight months ago, and it came with solar panels on the roof of the house. Mm -hmm. And it's a revel. I've never done that. I've never had it before. It's a revelation for me on what it does for your energy costs it's in, it's it's incredible i never even thought about it but similarly putting my energy supply on the roof of the house yes economically more efficient but also uh the degradation to to the climate you know the possibilities are uh, are incredible and then we look at you know the the supply chain disruption uh because we rely on far off lands and like you said just in time and and of course it it, it goes a long way to do that but is proximity the antithesis or solution to globalization because this is the question is how did we get to a globalized world when it's very clear the benefits of proximity now it's profit right we've moved to a globalized world where things were produced in far off lands because it was cheaper to do so but as the world equalizes as people are lifted out of poverty then proximity becomes a more relevant notion right and and, yep. and could it be the end of globalization as we 
as we see it today, which a lot of people, like Charles Eisenstein, for example, <laughs> absolutely rail against. But mm-hmm. is it the future in, in solving a number of those issues? Right. I think we're certainly experiencing deglobalization, and that's kind of what businesses are planning. Uh, that's kind of the, the realm that they're planning for. And it does, it does yeah, move against um, globalization. But I think what made it possible, so the pursuit of I want it now, I want it when I want it where I want it, that has led to bad things too. It's led to big farms in the middle, far away, making one type of crop that degradates soil and reduces diversity, food diversity. But the economics are changing such that we can now more economically produce in smaller quantities and smaller batches. Going back to software, right? We don't have to spend a whole year developing a new version and then installing it we can now continually adapt we with you know 3d printing allows us to start producing in smaller quantities more efficiently advances in solar energy which is like doubling every nine months uh that allows us to now start producing energy more closely so the economic argument um is going to move us closer to proximity and certainly i think that especially now when we're worried about where's our wheat going to come from where is our oil coming from where's the gas coming from and what does that what kind of situations does that put us into i think there's a real interest in saying let's do more onshoring let's do more close production yeah In the same way that we drew a parallel between decentralized org structures and software engineering, we can do that with proximity and where we're heading technology-wise as well, because as part of the metaverse, as part of 5G, there's the notion of edge computing. So you now move the computing to its in closer proximity to where it's happening because you have to remove the latency out of the system to make it a reality. So driverless cars will never exist without true edge computing that's delivered at the edge. Because if it was in a central processing unit 20 kilometers away, it wouldn't have the the right reaction speed when you step, you know, when you needed to break and and all the rest of it. So there's a parallel there I see with edge compute and and proximity as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Which I think is interesting. Now I'm gonna we, we didn't talk about this, but and this has been an underlying thing we've discussed with Randy Zuckerberg and with, with very various other people. What are your thoughts, Kyan, on social media right now? Is it a positive for society? Is it a negative? Is it a good thing for business? Is it a bad thing? I, I, and this is a bit of a curveball question, but I thought this is, this is such a, a theme that we've talked about consistently. I'd, I'd really just like to get your off-the-cuff thoughts about it, if, if, if we could. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's good... In- so well, I, I, I've, I've been looking a lot of, a little bit at gaming, and I think gaming's really interesting. Um, you know, there's research says you know, my my son comes home from work, he gets his I mean from from school, he gets his homework done, and then he's allowed to game. And most of his friends' interactions outside of school are through gaming. So that's not social media. The the idea of connecting people digitally with each other, allowing them to have relationships, it improves eye-hand coordination. It improves teamwork. 
and the ability to collaborate, right? And I think those are kind of skills that we're going to need, especially they're going to need to solve some of the problems that we've let, we've left them with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that, if we look at that proximity of incentive to action, where you may take a small action, you immediately get a positive response, right? Which can lead to addiction. My my younger son, he's he plays one game where all he do, does is bang on the tablet because he's hammering. Because each time he hammers, he gets a little bit of money. That, that's he's not learning anything, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That that just looks really really. It looks really bad, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think that the metaverse and at least like decentralized blockchain enabled models could correct that because if we yeah. don't, we no longer have these central authorities that have da- data and that is mm-hmm. looking to get information from us and then stimulate us to take actions that they can make money from. That data yeah. starts existing in my own private wallet and I don't yeah. have to share it, and, and then we can move away from it. So I, I don't really know the. I don't really yeah. have a, a strong answer. I, I'm, I'm. I love TikTok. When I have like three minutes, I will t- open up TikTok and just start um, flipping yeah. through it. I, I think it's a it's it's a brilliant product, but I, it, it does it can become addictive, and all that data it, is being uh, accessed. And, accessed. You know, the gaming thing is really really interesting, and and you know again one of the things we've discussed on the past in this podcast is there was always that notion that if your children were gaming all the time on their ipads it must be bad for them right it must be something it's got to be bad for them because in our day and age i would go out in the street and play with a stick and i'm totally fine right they they should be doing that not playing roblox or Fortnite or all these things but i listened to i wish i could I'll, i'll have to find the name of this lady i listened to this podcast with um a futurist who's also a gamer and she writes code and and she said gaming is positive for children but only if you ask the child what does it take to be good at this game what skills do you have to sharpen and polish to be successful at this game and she said Mm. if you can get to that if you can get to that list of skills and the child acknowledges it then it's 100 percent positive that's you know, right. and I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. I get I get phone calls from my sons or mostly my youngest son. Hey, can I buy some Robux or can I buy some currency or can I buy this new version of a game? And they know I always ask two questions. What will you learn and how will that make the world a better place? And I try to mm-hmm. make them un- explain what they what they're going to learn and, and how they're going to how they could potentially use that to make the world a better place. It's yeah, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Now, look, we're coming towards the end, and I, I, I think we've tackled some really great topics. It's, it's been a real pleasure. But in the time we have left, uh, before we, we, we close out, we have a fun quick-fire round called TGI to go. Pan, and it's basically okay. multiple choice. I'm going to give you two, two options, and it gives our listeners just a little bit of an insight into your personality and what makes you tick. Okay. So are you ready to go? I think so. We'll find out. Okay. Here we go. TGI to go. TGI to go. Question number one. Dogs or cats? Cats. Do you have cats? Yes, I have two cats and we have a dog as well. Oh, okay. But but uh, the dog is my... Um... I've started to, to like the dog. I, I do like dogs now. And actually, we bought into a, a website 
called Earth Doggy that supplies for dogs and supports people adopting um, uh, rescue yeah. dogs. And if I'm really honest with you, I'm starting to I'm starting to have some affection for my dog. But I kind of play the joke internally with the kids is oh the Poppy as they call me is the cat is a cat person. It's the cat guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the Philadelphia Eagles or the New England Patriots. Oh, Eagles. I was born in Philadelphia. Yeah. I grew up in Philadelphia. It's either Eagles or the Saints. We're always from New Orleans. Yeah. And I live under the shadow of the Patriots down here in Connecticut. So Yeah, that that's you see, Larissa carefully researches these questions so there's some mm -hmm. relevance in them there, you see. <laughs> This is this is a, a, a tricky one. Slough UK. I don't know if you've ever been to Slough in the UK or Scranton, Pennsylvania. And there's a connection between the two if you follow a certain sitcom. Oh, oh yeah, 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 Slough. <laughs> I think the original, the original was, uh, was, oh, it was, that was the best. They were both yeah. amazing, both amazing. But... Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And obviously what we, we're a big fans of The Office and um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'll, as a Brit, and I, uh, I, I studied not far from Slough, but I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of the U.S. office. I have to say. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I know a guy who's a, uh, he's a magician. His father owned a paper company in Scranton, in the building that they show outside, you know, at the beginning. Um, yeah. And and he still he still has an office there. Cool, cool. Yeah. Okay, here's one that brings it back to technology a little bit, but a bit of a preference one. Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile? T-Mobile. I like I like T-Mobile. I like the brand. I like the former CEO. Uh, I came home from a trip one day. I was in Colombia for a week, and I came back, and AT&T gave me a bill for $2,000. And it was just for me having the phone on. I thought, oh, my gosh, so I left. That's good. Well, you know, T-Mobile are one of our biggest customers. I know, I know, uh, I know, I know, I yeah, know. Yeah, we're taking them to Israel next week, so that should nice. be that. That should be good. Um, here's a good one: Zuckerberg or Gates? Gates. Yeah. Gates. I, I. Yeah. Singing or dancing? Dancing, dancing. I love to dance. I don't think I'm a great dancer, but I love to dance. And uh, research shows that, like, in terms of maintaining your mental acuity with age dancing and dancing with other people dancing together is the best activity brilliant yeah. that's it yeah that's justification for the next time i um <laughs> make an idiot of myself on on, on any sure. given dance floor in any given city so mental health brilliant. yeah <laughs> orlando or los angeles i'm gonna go with orlando i'm gonna go with orlando i like the story and you know, i like i like the, the walt disney story and how they collected all that parcels of land without anyone noticing and they created something really special there kind of in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah nice winter or summer 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 my kids love winter we grew up they kind of grew up in the northeast uh, and i did as well but i just i just like i like the beach i like being outside where i am it's uh it's, it's perfect weather right now it's not not too hot not too yeah. cold I, I drove my vespa here and uh but i had to put a jacket on cool yeah the Munich Beer Festival or the Toronto Film Festival? Which one would you rather attend? I think, yeah, honestly, I think I, I, I like the I like the the, the Munich. Uh, I, I spent a summer in Munich, and um, it wasn't during the beer festival, but it was during the wine festival, which is almost the same thing, except you're drinking wine instead of beer, and you're in smaller glasses. You're still sitting in long tables. You're still singing loudly and cool. getting drunk, and it was fun. 
it's quite an experience. I, I love Munich as a, as a city. I've never been there for oct- the Oktoberfest, but I, I, I love German beer. It's my um, guilty pleasure. Yeah. So I, I, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Um, we're going to get a bit nerdy now. Star Trek or Star Wars? I like Star Trek. Star Trek, certainly. I think it's, you know, yeah. there's also just so much more Star Trek than Star Wars. Yeah. So many more hours to enjoy. Theater or opera? Theater. I was into the, I was into opera for a while, but um, yeah, I'm starting to take a I'm gonna I'm gonna be soon be taking an improv class to ah. get that's kind of like what I'm working on on my with my stage presence and in my speaking kind of like that's the yeah. next thing I want to work on. So I, I threw myself into an improv class. That and sounds so, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hiking or biking? I would I would have said hiking, but I just got a new bike for Father's Day, and I think it I think I realized I had a a 15 year old bike, and that's why I didn't like the bike. It was so heavy <laughs> and so much work, and now with the new bike, I mean the technology is just like wow! I can lift it up with a pinky practically. Wow. Okay. The weekend or Michael Jackson? Getting a bit musical here. I like I, I really like the weekend. I really like the weekend. I love the diversity of his music and pretty much whatever my kids like, I like. And, and yeah. yeah, they like the weekend. Yeah, yeah I'm a weekend. I'm a big fan, and you know he's he's from uh, Toronto as well. So he's, oh uh, right, right. Yeah, he's how uh, many? I mean, how what percentage of famous musical artists have come from Canada? Like that, if you looked at a chart, it's got to yeah. be. He'll be punching well above. Well, if you look at the top ten selling artists, I and I just know this fact off the top of my head: the top mm-hmm. ten selling artists in the world, mm-hmm. globally, three of them are in the top five from Canada. So what? Drake, The Weeknd, wow. and Justin Bieber are in the top five wow. biggest selling artists. If you look wow. at the, uh, there's another one I think somewhere in the top ten, but I can't remember. Who it is? It might be Michael okay. Bublé or somebody like that. I don't know, but wow. um, yeah, there is a lot actually. And, and considering I'm mm. British originally, where there was always a lot of sort of successful musicians, Canada sure. certainly got a few of them. You know. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Um, I don't, I don't know how I knew that fact right off the top of my head. It's just, uh, <laughs> there you go. It's good to um, have those facts. Yeah. yeah. Venice or Vienna? I love. I like Venice. I like Venice. Um, I like. Uh, I like Italy. Um, I studied Italian. We spent summers in Italy. I, I love the food. I love the people. I have. Um, I spent several summers in Tuscany. I, I love Italy. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And our final one of TGI to go: reading or writing. Writing. Uh, I have to yeah. read to write, but I love to write. You, if you, if if I can just like lock myself on a plane for five hours and then I start writing, and then five hours later, it's like felt like it was just yeah just minutes ago brilliant brilliant well brilliant that was a great that was a great tgi to go around um, i had no idea it was coming. yeah it's, it's a, we we learn a lot from our guests and it's really nice to to, to get that conversation going yeah. so what's next for you as we come to a close now what are you working on next what's your big project that uh, you'd want to share yeah. with our listeners well, we talked about proximity that I'm finishing in November to be published the next year. I'm also working on a book with another professor from Wharton called creating a customer centric corporate culture. And so that will hopefully also be published next year. And then I'm working on a piece of research about these decentralized organizations that'll turn into a series of papers this year, and then hopefully a book in 2024. And there's another book, I call it the eight P's. It's kind of like a, a, a framework that I've been working on for like 
15 years, developing 15 years to help entrepreneurs uh, avoid avoidable mistakes. Um, so that's my that's my pipeline of, of content. That's that's what I'm mostly wow. focused on. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. Sounds interesting. And where can our listeners find out more about your work, Kai? Um, I, you know, the the two best places would be go to kaihan.net. Uh, and yeah. then if you look up the Outthinkers podcast. And we'll put those in the show notes as well for our listeners and, and on our webpage. So that would be great. Access. So listen, um, Kai, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. It's been brilliant. The time has flown by. So I want to say thank you very much. It's been fantastic. This has been extremely enjoyable. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us, Kayan. It was great meeting you, speaking with you. And, you know, when we have conversations like this, the time just flies by and, and the conversation could go on for literally hours. So please check out Kyan's work via his website and also check out his Outthinker podcast. Um, they're all in the show notes uh, for your reference. And please subscribe to our podcast and all the usual podcast channels. Leave a review or rating if you feel so inclined. It certainly helps us. Check out two other Amdos podcasts that are quite brilliant and available now. The Future of Tech with Abhishek Charlin and Points of View with our Chief Marketing Officer, Gil Rosem. Also visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto and have a great day wherever you are.